0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Reluctant Historian. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson, and this is our reluctant historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history, and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So, if you love history,
1: or you absolutely hate it,
0: this podcast is for you. On today's episode...
1: What is it? I'm a little ne- okay, I, was, I preface this, I'm a little nervous, because you you said it was a lot of pages, <laughs> and that- uh, No,
0: it's only nine.
1: What? you Did you pare it down?
0: I don't You remember. said it was
1: 14 originally. What? You told, you said no. this, you did- oh, 12, you, it's 12. Okay, well, whatever, either way- That's m- too long. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm a little nervous that you're gonna lose me on this one, mm-hmm. but- you also said i might not like this one That's so true. That's uh, true. uh so tell me what is it
0: uh yeah so on today's episode we're going to be talking about the first british and chinese opium war okay that could
1: be interesting it also could be dreadfully boring we'll see
0: <laughs> yeah i guess you'll just have to listen to find out
1: yeah <laughs> <You> <laughs> so can't sit- wait <laughs>
0: <laughs> so sit down buckle up and get ready to listen to the history of the opium wars like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. So Dakota, what is your golden nugget? Well, I'm a simple
1: farmer. Elizabeth. <laughs> I thought you were a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a man of many hats. Ah. And uh, sometimes I moonlight as a lawyer, sometimes I moonlight as a farmer. Mm. And uh, yesterday, I got to completely fill my garden boxes up with Uh, dirt—a nice compost and peat moss and coconut core mixture—and it is somehow exhilarating. Oh gosh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited. They're completely full now. It was fucking expensive, and I'll have to do that again when I buy more garden boxes. But for now, they are full.
0: Did you plant any seeds?
1: What do you think? You're trying to trick me? Like, I'm not a noob, okay? You don't plant until after May long.
0: Ah, <laughs> I didn't know that.
1: Yes, so um, I'm going to buy my tomato plants this weekend. Yeah, this weekend I'll probably probably buy them just so, in case they're, like, selling out and shit, you know? People mm-hmm. are crazy for these. Uh, they truly are. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to grow you some, uh, some crop.
0: I'm excited for that, that as know? well. You know? Grow
1: you some grain. Yes. <laughs> what's yours?
0: Yeah, so I don't have a golden nugget this week. Well, I do, but um, I wanted to talk about my lump of coal.
1: Okay. Uh, Can I just start by saying maybe uh, each time you go a little overboard and you do too many golden nuggets at once and now you don't have any.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, uh, it's a, I guess, lesson learned.
1: I guess. Okay. Yes. What's your lump of coal?
0: My lump of coal is Dave.
1: Dave, <laughs> tell the listeners about Dave.
0: Yes, so I have a hiatal hernia, and uh, it is in the middle of my chest.
1: It's a, not a lump of coal, lump of hernia.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, it hurts, and it's like 2.5 centimeters lump on my, on my chest, and Dakota and I have named it Dave, and he is a pain in the chest.
1: That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we uh, <laughs> we decided we wanted an open relationship, so we invited Dave to the party. You know, gross. <laughs> we wanted a third. Yeah, I hear that's what the kids are doing the, these days. <laughs> that is
0: what is that is what is up. But um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a really weird sensation because it uh, you know, your stomach is coming up through your diaphragm into your chest cavity where it's not supposed to be.
1: Yeah, which also, if you're like me and didn't know what a hernia was until recently, there's an image for you.
0: Right. And then so it's like really close to your um your vagus nerve or vagal nerve or whatever, some sort of nerve. So yeah. sometimes if I stroke Dave awkwardly, I get like these weird like heart fluttering sensations because I it's like touching the nerve that it's not supposed to be touching. And it's like, it's just a world of worldness.
1: Another beautiful image as the... <laughs> listeners are imagining this dave is your pet but he's not he's our boyfriend <laughs>
0: no, he's not our boyfriend he's well, this disgusting thing that i want out of my body no i, I want to keep him i want him back where he belongs keep him
1: like, like they'll cut him out and we'll just keep him on the mantle yeah
0: but he's a you part know? of my stomach so yeah we probably shouldn't cut you'll, that out
1: you'll be you'll be like dakota when's date night And i'll be like it's dave's turn to take you <laughs> out
0: <laughs> this got really weird
1: yes That's what uh, most interactions with me are like. That's true.
0: All right. So the opium wars.
1: Oh, I thought this podcast was going to turn into Dave Hour. (laughs) No.
0: The opium wars refer to two armed conflicts between the Qing dynasty in China and the Western colonizers during the age of imperialism in the mid-19th century. We're only going to talk about the first opium war. I didn't want to talk about the second one. Oh. Because then it would have been like a two-parter.
1: Oh, exciting
0: well you were not excited to read this or listen to this so it's true i'm not i'm not but (laughs) the first opium war was from 1839 to 1842 and was fought between china and britain and the second which is also known as the arrow war was fought between china and the british and the french Um, but it's more interesting than i'm making it out to be
1: god i hope so (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm just gonna rip on you the entire (laughs) (laughs) no that might tear tear you apart i'll ease off a little
0: bit (laughs) okay so anyways these two conflicts marked the start of unequal treaties between the western colonizers and the qing dynasty because of course and it also helped to weaken and ultimately topple the dynasty in favor of republican china in the early 20th century now before we get into this topic dakota we need to know a little bit about imperialism and how Western Europe tried to colonize the entire world. Wow. Historians refer to this time in Western history as the age of imperialism from approximately 1500 to 1914. Imperialism is when a country decides to take over another by use of political influence and diplomacy or military force. The colonizing country then controls this new territory politically, economically, and socially to varying degrees.
1: And Europe tried to do this to the whole world? Yes. Huh. Huh. That doesn't seem good. <laughs> no,
0: well, we are dealing with the effects of colonialism in today times.
1: Yeah, because yeah. they came here and yes. took over here. <laughs> yes. But they didn't get... They were in this... They, like, they were trying to get China in this... Oh, in this story, yeah. In the story, okay. Yeah. Hmm, interesting.
0: During this time period, many Western countries realized that taking over new lands would help them greatly in terms of wealth and resources as well as give them bragging rights compared to the other European powers. This time period was a race amongst the European countries to see who could collect and control the most territory at the expense of the colonies that they took over. Major colonizers of this time were England, France, Belgium, the Dutch, and the United States. Also Japan, but also not Japan.
1: Mm. Hmm. That sounds confusing.
0: (laughs) Well, they tried to be imperialist, and then they kind of were like... Ah, this was a bad idea, and we made friends with Germany and Hitler, and maybe we should stop this.
1: <laughs> they they made friends with Hitler and were like, ah, like, he keeps calling, <laughs> like, I just, ah, he's a little too much, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah, and then and they got bombs dropped on them. Hmm. Which was a topic for another time.
1: Wait, is that, I'm I completely pulling that aside of my ass. Is this Hiroshima? You're right. Man, uh, I'm... I'm learning.
0: You are. Previously, in the early 1500s... Previously
1: on the 1500s.
0: Spain and Portugal were the most powerful colonizers, but they were overtaken by the previously mentioned countries in the early 1800s. The main targets of imperialism at this time were Africa, China, India, the Oceanic Islands, and Latin America. So, like, North America had kind of already been colonized at this time, sort of. So... That's where we get the United States. So they're Mm -hmm. looking towards Africa and all these other places. Different Western powers colonize different areas of the earth. So let's get back to the opium war, shall we? (laughs) We shall. In which I want to focus specifically on the war between the British and the Qing dynasty. Europe and China had allowed for direct European trade, um, starting with about 1557, when the Portuguese leased an outpost from the Ming dynasty at Macau. Um, I thought that was interesting because usually when we think of imperialism, uh, you have the European countries coming over and being like, "I'm going to take this place, pew pew," and then they kill everybody and take it over. But I'm guessing that probably in the 1500s, the Portuguese didn't have the technology to be like, "Pew pew," and they had to lease the port rather than take it over for themselves. <laughs> they
1: lease de- it. <laughs> they de- lease it. Yeah. Like like when you lease a car.
0: Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I was going to like
1: make a joke about it, but that's actually what it is. So. Yeah.
0: There also already existed a strong trade network in this area among the Arab, Chinese, Indian, and Japanese merchants at the time, and the Europeans soon inserted themselves in there as well. Trading in China was extremely lucrative for European and Chinese merchants alike, as goods such as tea, porcelain, and silk were highly valid- valued in Europe enough to justify the expenses of traveling to Asia. So you have to go by boat, and it's, it costs a lot of money. The system of trading was known as the Canton system and was highly regulated by the New Qing Dynasty in 1757. This policy arose as a response to the political and commercial threat from abroad.
1: <laughs> no, that's bad. <laughs> just abroad? Abroad is like, ah! Just threatening people. <laughs>
0: Foreign traders were only permitted to do business through a body of Chinese merchants known as the Kohang and were forbidden to learn Chinese. Foreigners could only live in one of the 13 factories, which aren't actually factories, and they were not allowed to enter or trade in any other part of China. The 13 factories refers to a neighborhood, and I use that term loosely, along the Pearl River in southwestern Guangzhou, which was also known as Canton at this time. These warehouses and stores were the principal and sole legal site of most Western trade with China from 1757 to 1842. Um, And also, the word factory is a little bit tricky here because it doesn't talk about, like, actual factories in the way that we know them. Um, Rather, they're offices, trading posts, and warehouses of the foreign traders. So I'm giving you all this background information, Coda.
1: Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, so that you can
0: understand why the British get upset. Okay. Yeah. In the Canton system, foreign traders were only allowed to deal with low-level government officials, and so I'm assuming that's to keep the colonizers away from, like, the emperor and the actual Chinese government, and not give them more access to China. The imperial laws that upheld this system were collectively known as, in English, the Prevention Barbarian Ordinances.
1: It just rolls off the tongue.
0: Yes, and I fucking love it, because they're basically calling the European Europeans barbarians.
1: Damn. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I feel like the Europeans, um, in my eyes, they're they're these hoity-toity people that would call other people barbarians that they're trying to take over. So I like that they're getting what's coming to them being being called barbarians.
0: That's also why I like it. yeah, Because that was one of the reasons that they gave for colonizing all these places. They were like, oh, well, we need to show these uncivilized people what it actually means to be civilized, which was completely wrong.
1: Yeah, so I like that they're being like, I'm just picturing these hoity-toity people.
0: Did they know they were being called barbarians? I mean, they must have, because that's what the laws were called.
1: They they just, they must have fucking hated that. (laughs) And I love it.
0: Yeah. So the Kohong, the guild of Chinese merchants I spoke about previously, were particularly powerful in old China trade, as they were tasked with appraising the value of foreign products, purchasing of said imports, and charged with selling Chinese exports at an appropriate price. Another key function of theirs was the traditional bond signed between a kohong member and a foreign merchant. This bond stated that the receiving kohong member was responsible for the foreign merchant's behavior and cargo while in China. In addition to dealing with the kohong, European merchants were required to pay customs fees, measurement duties, provide gifts, and hire navigators. So they're at a deficit when it comes to trade in China. Despite restrictions, silk and porcelain continue to drive trade through their popularity in Europe. And an insatiable demand for Chinese tea existed in Britain. From the mid-17th century onward, around 28 million kilograms, which is 61.6 million pounds of silver, were received by China from the European powers in exchange for Chinese products. So if you're Europe, you're not too happy that you have to spend so much money to get this stuff. The tea? And other things, yes. Oh, So this type of trade relationship existed between the Chinese and Europeans for over a century, and it heavily favored the Chinese. This resulted in large trade deficits on the side of the Europeans. However, the demand for these Chinese goods continued to drive commerce. So the people that lived in England are like, no, get us our tea, we need it. In the beginning, the colonization and conquest of the Americas had allowed for cheap and easy access to silver, resulting in European economies remaining relatively stable despite this trade deficit with china in stark contrast the qing dynasty was thriving with foreign silver flooding into china in exchange for their goods so in the 17th and 18th centuries europe continued its dark trek across the globe in search of more and more precious metals colonizing more and more territories in its wake
1: i like to do the (laughs) i like to assume that they called it their dark trek (laughs) i like well time to continue our dark trek
0: I hope that's what they were saying.
1: As they put their fingers together like Mr. Burns.
0: Mm-mm. These precious metals were used to mint new coins, increasing the need for hard currency. And that means, like, literally hard coins.
1: Uh, well, I mean, coins are... Well, I guess, yeah, because when you say, like, ah, I got hard cash, you know, you're usually, like, just saying you have a lot of it, right? Yeah. Whereas in this case they're like, no, we have actual coins that are heavy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so they were taking the metal out of the like the mountains and putting it into
1: coin shape. Into coin shape? Were they actual coins? Yep. Oh, okay. (laughs) Because I usually when I don't when I (laughs) go to pay for something with a loonie, I don't go, "Here's a loony shape." (laughs) They would assume I'm counterfeiting. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. Um. So they needed this uh, currency to remain in circulation in Europe. This reduced the supply of bullion, which is the physical gold and silver, available for trade in China, and led to competition between the European merchants who did trade with the Chinese. This resulted in a now chronic trade deficit for European governments, who were forced to risk silver shortages in their domestic economies to supply the needs of their merchants in Asia. Eventually, European merchants who were only allowed to trade in silver with the Chinese began to take silver directly out of circulation in the already weakened economies of Europe in order to pay for the goods in China. This angered the European governments who saw their economies shrink as a result and fostered a great deal of animosity towards the Chinese for the restriction of European trade. The Chinese economy, on the other hand, was unaffected by fluctuations in silver prices as China was able to import Japanese silver to stabilize its money supply. European goods also remained in low demand in China ensuring the long-standing trade surplus with the European nations continued. So, to sum it up, Dakota, China has lots of good stuff. Europe wants that good stuff. They don't have enough silver to get that good stuff. And China's like, oh, ha ha you barbarians.
1: <laughs> you could have fucking just said that. I was like, I'm glad you summed it up because like, I was like, I was losing you on that one. So. I figured you were. Yeah. And
0: maybe our listeners are too. Or maybe our listeners are like super nerdy economics majors and are like ha, ha, that so good <laughs>
1: well minus the economics major i feel like Teresa followed you on that one she probably so. <laughs> did. She is very smart
0: she you is know, our financial advisor though so. that's true yeah so this brings us to the opium trade dakota do you know what opium is
1: so at first when he said opium i was like i was thinking opio opioids right wait well, that's what it is sort of but keep going okay but then i was thinking opium I was thinking, isn't that... Don't they have those... No, I'm thinking hookah. Ah. (laughs) I was like, isn't that just that hookah stuff that they do with, like, bars and stuff like that, and young people think they're fucking cool, because they're oh, I did hookah.
0: You're on the right track, though. I'm assuming you got the hookah idea from the opium den images that probably are in your mind from stereotypes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I suppose that's an accurate... uh, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. accurate.
0: Well, to answer your question... What question? (laughs) Opium is a narcotic substance that is created from the poppy flower. It was used as a medicinal ingredient in China as early as the Tang Dynasty, which was around six hundred CE.
1: The Tang Dynasty.
0: Not Tang (laughs) crystals.
1: Oh I was like I was like they just they loved orange juice. They really did. But orange juice that doesn't taste that good. (laughs) Because Tang isn't great. I like Tang. (laughs) You're fucking wrong, Mm. but okay.
0: Recreational usage of opium as a narcotic was limited, so they used it as medicine but not to get high. Early on, opium was introduced to China by Arab merchants. It was originally seen as a minor issue until the first restrictions on opium were passed by the Qing in 1729.
1: Sorry, I need you to clarify for our listeners, minor as in child or minor as in someone who mines?
0: Minor as in not important. I was wrong on both (laughs) accounts.
1: Okay, well, uh, uh, now who's the fool? Apparently it's me. (laughs) I guess
0: so. (laughs) So they banned this thing called madak, which is a substance made from powdered opium blended in with tobacco. At that time, madak production used up most of the opium being imported into China, as pure opium was difficult to preserve. Consumption of opium from Java rose in the 18th century when the British, surprise, surprise, became the primary traders in opium. Britain had taken over Java at this time, and it was at this time they realized they could reduce their trade deficit with the Chinese by counter-trading the narcotic opium.
1: Whoa. Wait, Java?
0: It's it's an island in Indonesia.
1: Oh, I was like, a coffee shop? (laughs) The British British had this coffee shop. <laughs> mm,
0: no, sorry. That's where they
1: do all their trading of drugs.
0: <laughs> so the British went on to begin producing more opium in their Indian territories. So under their trading corporation called the East Indian Company, Great Britain roughly held the major means of production of opium in the world.
1: Oh, so they were the big barbarians on top.
0: They were. And initially, the Qing dynasty um, tolerated opium importation into China. In a roundabout way, they were able to gain more silver from this way. The Chinese people buying the opium used silver to get it. This then went to the British merchants, who in turn were able to spend more silver on Chinese goods that they wanted, tea especially. However, the opium had an adverse effect on the social stability in China. Opium usage continued to grow as the habit spread north and west from Canton, Affecting members from every class of the Chinese society. What had been for many a recreational drug became a punishing addiction.
1: Wait a minute. Is this a D.A.R.E. class? Do you, are you tricking me into... I already took D.A.R.E. I got my certificate.
0: And this is why, kids, we don't do drugs. <laughs> the British will invade you. <laughs> yeah, so it had been a recreational drug. Uh, many people who stopped ingesting opium suffered chills, nausea, and cramps, and sometimes died from withdrawal. Once addicted, people would often do almost anything to continue to get access to the drug. This spread eventually led to the Qing dynasty issuing an edict against the drug in 1780, followed by an outright ban in 1796, and in order to stop the trade of opium in 1799. In order to get around these orders, foreign merchants bought older ships and converted them into floating warehouses. These ships were anchored off the Chinese coast at the mouth of the Pearl River in case the Chinese authorities moved against the opium trade. They would allow them to take up anchor and move to open water as the Chinese Navy had difficulty operating in these spaces. So, Britain realizes that the Chinese people have become addicted to opium and so they're like, good, we can start giving more opium to the Chinese people who will give us silver so we can buy the tea from the Chinese and not lose money.
1: So they created these pop-up shops on the sea and on am just picturing them like floating on the sea and just like get your drugs get your drugs and there's no one around <laughs> maybe some sharks yeah you know
0: mm-hmm. inbound opium ships would unload a portion of their cargo onto these floating warehouses where the narcotic was eventually purchased by Chinese opium dealers by implementing this system of smuggling foreign merchants could avoid inspection by Chinese officials and prevent retaliation against the trade in legal goods, in which many smugglers also participated. The demand for opium grew rapidly and was so profitable in China that Chinese opium dealers, who were allowed to legally travel, and we remember that in the Canton system, the British couldn't go in there.
1: We do remember that, yes.
0: They could go and sell goods in the Chinese interior, and they began to seek out more suppliers of the drug. More and more European merchants were drawn into the opium business in order to meet the Chinese demand. In the words of one trading house agent, opium, it is like gold, I can sell it any time.
1: Words to live by, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's it is the golden rule.
0: Sell opium, get money?
1: No, he said it's like uh, it's like gold. Yes. So it's the golden rule.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so this results in a change in the trading system. From 1804 to 1820, the flow of money between the Chinese and Europeans gradually reversed, and Chinese merchants were soon exporting silver to pay for opium, rather than Europeans paying for Chinese goods with precious metal. European and American ships were able to arrive in Canton with their holds filled with opium, sell their cargo, use the proceeds to buy Chinese goods, and turn a profit in the form of silver bullion. The silver would then be used to acquire more Chinese goods. The Qing Imperial Court debated whether or how to even end the opium trade. And in the year 1800, they banned both the production and importation of the opium.
1: So just a quick quick note that I'm noticing is there's a lot of time like span. Mm-hmm. Like you start in the 1500s and now we're already in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah. when did the opium stuff start then? The 17... war? Yeah, like 1700s. The season? war or the trade? Well, you're assuming I know the difference.
0: <laughs> Trading is when I give you something and you give me something back. War is when I fight you to the death.
1: Oh You th- you think you wouldn't have to explain that to a twenty nine year old man.
0: I love you wrong. so much. <laughs> oh
1: man, I've been getting I've been getting this trading <laughs> I've been getting this trading thing so wrong for so many years.
0: What have you been doing when you're trading Pokemon cards?
1: <laughs> I got a lot of skeletons in my closet, dear.
0: Literal? Our closet,
1: actually. <laughs> Yeah, did you ever, like, open the closet, you're looking for a a shirt, and all of a sudden, oh, dead body, you know?
0: Ah, now that you mention it. (laughs) Now that you mention it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so anyways, the trade in opium began in the 1700s. The war was in 1839, so about a hundred and some years. Okay, cool. Um... So the Qing dynasty then went on to outlaw the smoking of opium and imposed a punishment of beating offenders 100 times. So if you were caught smoking opium, you would get beaten.
1: (laughs) Man, this does sound like dare. (laughs) You You do drugs, we'll beat the shit out of you.
0: That's
1: what the cops would tell us. Yes. Good times.
0: (laughs) Their efforts to curtail opium abuse were complicated by local officials and the Kohang, who profited greatly from the bribes and taxes involved in the narcotics trade. Efforts to curb opium imports through regulations resulted in an increase in drug smuggling by European and Chinese traders, and corruption was rampant. By 1836, the Chinese government began to get more serious about enforcing this 1813 ban. It closed the opium dens and executed Chinese dealers. But the problem only grew worse the emperor called for a debate among Chinese officials on how best to deal with the crisis. The two sides to this debate were essentially make the drug legal, but tax it so heavily that people could not buy it. Or the other side who argued that the opium trade was a moral issue and an evil that had to be eliminated, debated that they needed to stop bringing opium into China. They said that if opium continued to come into the country, the Chinese empire would have no peasants to work the land, no townsfolk to pay taxes, no students to study, and no soldiers to fight. They argued that instead of targeting the users, they should stop and punish the pushers who imported and sold the drug in China. In the end, this is the side that won the debate, and the leader of this debate was called Lin Zexu.
1: Wait, so they decided to uh, punish the pushers? Yes. Classic. Sure, blame the drug dealer, okay? It's his fault.
0: (laughs) So... The Emperor of China appointed Lin Zexu to the post of Special Imperial Commissioner, and his task was to eradicate the opium trade. He penned a now-famous letter called Letter to Queen Victoria, in which he appealed to Queen Victoria's moral reasoning, citing what he mistakenly understood to be a strict ban on opium within Great Britain. Lin questioned how Britain could declare itself moral while its merchants profited from the legal sale in China of a drug that was banned in Britain. The letter never reached the Queen with one source suggesting it was lost in transit. Lin pledged that nothing would divert him from his mission. He went on to ban the sale of opium and demanded that all supplies of the drug be surrendered to the Chinese authorities. He also closed the Pearl River Channel, trapping British traders in Canton. As well as seizing opium stockpiles in warehouses and the 13 factories, Chinese troops boarded British ships in the Pearl River and South China Sea before destroying the opium on board. Now this is going to pose a problem for the British, because now all of their opium has gone bye-bye. They're going to
1: be so mad. Mm -hmm.
0: In response, the British superintendent of trade in China, Charles Elliott, protested the decision to forcibly seize the opium stockpiles. He ordered all ships carrying opium to flee and prepare for battle.
1: Those were our drugs.
0: Lin responded by surrounding these foreign dealers in the foreign quarter of Canton in an attempt to make them surrender, and in order to stop them from communicating with their ships in port. To defuse the situation, Elliot convinced the British traders to cooperate with Chinese authorities and hand over their opium stockpiles with the promise of eventual compensation for their losses by the British government. This effectively gave acknowledgement to the fact that the British government was pro-opium trade. But it also put the government in a tight spot in order to be able to pay back these merchants without causing a political storm.
1: Sorry, can I ask, was opium illegal in Britain?
0: Uh, yes, it was illegal in Britain.
1: But the government is being just like whatever about it. They're just corrupt fucks at the time.
0: I mean, their historians debate about what the government actually wanted to allow to happen and whether they were corrupt and all of that sort of stuff. Um, one of the prime ministers of England down the line is like, We were horrible. Like, why the heck did we do that? Um, But other people in government did see it as a way to make money. And I personally, understanding how colonizers think and their goals, think that and how merchants at this time probably thought and their goals. I think that they probably were like, eh, a couple Chinese people get addicted to opium. I don't Mm -hmm. care because I can get my tea.
1: Right. Yeah. That sounds about right for the time.
0: Yeah. Now, that's just my personal opinion. I could be wrong.
1: Yeah. But, uh, you know. I'm easily susceptible, so I believe you. Yeah.
0: So during April and May in 1839, the British and American dealers surrendered 20,283 chests and 200 sacks of opium. This stockpile was publicly destroyed on the beach outside of Canton.
1: It's a lot of drugs. That is.
0: After the opium was surrendered, trade was restarted on the strict condition that no more opium be shipped into China. So they, he had kind of stopped all trade to try to get rid of these drugs. And he's like, okay, we can keep trading, but no more, no more opium.
1: Let me guess. Somebody ruined it and started <laughs> selling opium again.
0: Oh yeah, the smugglers. They were like, Doo, do, do, do.
1: classic drug dealers. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm blaming them. Yeah, they get a bad rap.
0: They do. As part of his desire to police the opium trade and make sure that they stop dealing in opium, Lin demanded that all foreign merchants and Qing official officials sign a new bond promising not to deal in opium under the penalty of death. Wow,
1: that's pretty hardcore.
0: The British government opposed the signing of this bond, feeling that it violated the principle of free trade. Trade in regular goods continued, and the scarcity of opium caused by the seizure of the foreign warehouse caused the black market to flourish. Some ships learned about the ban on opium and would unload their cargoes at a place called Linton Island. This, along with the sharp rise in the price of opium, was seized upon by some of the Kohong trading houses and smugglers, who were able to evade Commissioner Lin's efforts and smuggled more opium into China. So we're left with this powder keg type of situation. For the British, Lin's destruction of the opium was an affront to the British dignity and their concepts of trade. Many British merchants, smugglers, and the British East India Company had argued for years that China was out of touch with civilized nations. And I, you already touched on this, that... We have It was an antiquated notion of what civilized actually means, so I don't need to say what I had written down here.
1: It's true, I definitely uh, antiquated a notion, <laughs> which is something I definitely would have said.
0: This destruction of opium resulted in millions of pounds of sterling lost, and it gave politicians in Great Britain the excuse they were looking for to act more forcefully to expand British imperial interests in China. Because remember, other than opium, China didn't really have anything to trade with Great Britain.
1: So then they were just like, well, I guess we'll just take you over. Yeah. Dicks. Well,
0: sort of. Now we come to the war. I'm only on page seven? What the heck was I typing in here? <laughs> Do you want to hear about all the battles?
1: I want to hear whatever you got.
0: <laughs> in early July 1893, a group of British merchant sailors in Colón got drunk and murdered a villager from nearby Shei Tzu. Superintendent Elliot ordered the arrest Tra- of the t- Chalmers. <laughs> superintendent Elliot ordered the arrest of the two men and paid compensation to lin's family and village however he refused to turn the soldiers over to chinese authorities fearing they would be killed in accordance with chinese legal code Lin zeshu saw this as an obstruction of justice this led to a period of rumors and distrust among the european traders on the pearl river with europeans being barred from the harbor and thus no longer having access to supplies and provisions on September 4th, Elliot sent in an armed schooner and a cutter to try and get provisions from Chinese peasants. The two ships approached three Chinese war junks, which is a type of sailing ship, and requested permission to land men in order to procure supplies. The British were allowed through and were given basic necessities by Chinese soldiers, but the Chinese commander inside Kowloon Fort result- refused to allow the locals to trade with the British and confined the townspeople inside the settlement. The situation grew more and more tense as the day went on, and in the afternoon, Elliot issued an ultimatum that if the Chinese refused to allow the British to purchase supplies, they would be fired upon. A 3pm deadline was set, and as it came and went, the British ships opened fire on Chinese on the Chinese vessels. The junks returned fire, and the Chinese gunners on land began to fire at the British ship. Nightfall ended the battle, and the Chinese junks withdrew, ending what would be known as the Battle of Kowloon. Many British officers wanted to launch an attack on Kowloon Fort the next day, but Elliot decided against it, stating that such an action would cause great injury and irritation to the town's inhabitants. Having driven off the Chinese ships, the British fleet began to purchase provisions from local villagers, often with the aid of the bribed Chinese officials in Kowloon. On the other side, Lao and Ju, the local commander at Kowloon, declared that a victory had been won against the British. claimed that a two-masted British warship had been sunk and that 40 to 50 British people had been killed. He also reported that the British had been unable to acquire supplies, and these reports severely understated the strength of the Royal Navy. Similar small skirmishes continued to break out until war was officially declared in June 1840. Prior to this, Britain was busy getting their ships and soldiers together in order to be able to fight in the waters just off of China, and this all came to a head in late June when the first part of the British forces arrived in China, aboard 15 barrackships, ships, four steam-powered gunboats, so not, not wood ones, wow, steam, and 25 smaller boats, the British issued an ultimatum demanding demanding the Qing government pay compensation for losses suffered from interrupted trade and the destruction of opium. But they were rebuffed by Qing authorities in Canton. Rebuffed? Yes. Yeah, so they were like. The Qing dynasty was like, nah, fam, we're not going to give you this money even though you've got all these warships outside.
1: Bold of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Combined naval and ground assault was launched on the group of islands in the Chusun Archipelago. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Zushan Island, the largest and best defended of the islands, was the primary target of this attack as it was the vital port of Dinghai. I'm saying so many Chinese words at you right now.
1: Yeah. I And I, you're probably nailing them all.
0: I know I am. I'm actually pretty really? decent at my Chinese accents. Oh. I think. If well. we have any um, Mandarin speakers, please let me know if I'm butchering these. When the British fleet arrived off of the coast of Zushan, they demanded that the city surrender. The commander of the Chinese garrison refused, stating that he could not surrender and questioning what reason the British had for harassing Ding as they had been driven out of Canton. Fighting began and a fleet of 12 small junks were destroyed by the Royal Navy and the British Marines captured the hills to the south of Dinghai. So I'm just going to skip over a bunch of different military battles. I had written them down here because you told me that you really liked military battles or Mm -hmm. knowing action, Mm -hmm. but I feel like this is getting a bit too long. So listeners, if you would like to know what those battles are, please write in and let us know because we could do like maybe a special like mini episode about the battles of the Opium Wars. So the war lasted for a couple of years and it came to an eventual end with the Treaty of Nanking or Nanjing. Some documents I read stated that the Chinese officials were forced to sign this treaty at gunpoint, but I could not confirm this. This treaty provided ridiculous benefits to the British, including a deep water port at Hong Kong, huge compensation to be paid to the British government and merchants, five new Chinese treaty ports where British merchants and their families could live, extraterritoriality...
1: Yeah, try again. (laughs) No, I said that right. Really? Yep. Oh, weird. Okay. For
0: British citizens living in these treaty ports, which meant that they were subject to British, not Chinese law, and a most favored nation clause that any rights that other nations were able to negotiate with the Chinese would automatically apply to the British as well.
1: Oh. 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 Oh.
0: And China had to give Hong Kong to the British Empire.
1: So... China just got fucked. Yes. <laughs> uh, damn. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you can't confirm that this was at gunpoint?
0: I only saw one document that said that that was the case.
1: Oh, what kind of journalist are you? Well, who i did, read a bunch of other Who articles. did you ask? Who did you interview?
0: Your mom. <laughs>
1: you got me good, you fucker. <laughs>
0: The Treaty of Nanking was followed in 1844 by a system of unequal treaties between China and Western powers. Um, So essentially what ends up happening is China has to keep giving up more and more of its stuff uh, in order to not be conquered and destroyed by the Western powers who now have steamships. For China, this treaty provided no benefits. In fact, Chinese imports of opium rose to a peak in 1879. So their whole goal to get rid of opium... Was not successful.
1: That Lin dude must be very disappointed.
0: Oh yeah, he got um banished actually. What? Yeah, the emperor was like, "You you failed me. Get banished." Oh no. Yeah, but you know what, BB? What? So proud you remembered his name. You're listening.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to.
0: (laughs) So the aftermath of the Opium War. What ended up happening in 1838 was that the British imposed on China their version of free trade and insisted on the legal right of their citizens to do what they wanted, wherever they wanted. Chinese critics point out that while the British made lofty arguments about the principle of free trade and individual rights, they were in fact pushing a product, opium, that was illegal in their own country. There are different viewpoints on what was the main underlying factor in Britain's involvement in the opium wars. Some people in the West claim that the opium wars were about upholding the principle of free trade. Others, however, say that Great Britain was acting more in the interest of protecting its international reputation while it was facing challenges in other parts of the world, such as in the Near East, India, and Latin America. Some American historians have argued that the conflicts were not so much about opium as they were about Western powers' desire to expand commercial relations more broadly and do away with the Canton trading system. Finally, some Western historians say the war was fought at least partly to keep China's balance of trade in a deficit and that opium was an effective way to do that, even though it had a very negative impact on Chinese society. For me, one of the most interesting parts was the ceding or giving of Hong Kong to the British. It wasn't until 1997 that Hong Kong was formally even given back to China.
1: Okay, that was honestly, I mean, that was my big question as I'm like, (laughs) when you said that, I'm like, i don't think they still own hong kong (laughs) like (laughs) but 1997 Mm -hmm. that that wasn't that long ago no that's weird that the british owned did they like how did that come to be that they gave it back
0: um lots of legal jargon and being like hey we should probably give this back and the chinese republic being like yeah we'd like it back and I, I believe
1: it took them till 1997 to be like, you know, it's the right thing to give them back <laughs> there. <laughs> We're not, you know, in the same continent. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That's well, stupid.
0: Yeah, that's pretty colonial of them. Yeah. Um, so, this has actually paved the way for a number of modern issues that affect us right up until 2020. Mm. Uh, mainland China had spent the majority of the 19th century as a communist regime, while Hong Kong at the time was under British rule. This allowed for a number of political dissidents, refugees, and officials who had lost power in China to flee to Hong Kong as a safe haven. When the Chinese did get Hong Kong back, they signed an agreement between the United Kingdom and the People's Republic of China, stating that the socialist system of the People's Republic of China would not be practiced in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Regions, and its previous capitalist system and way of life would remain unchanged for a period of 50 years
1: wait so it was no longer a safe haven for these people anymore it was it was a capitalist or not capitalistic it was a
0: what's the word socialist communist
1: communist it was a communist society again
0: no so china so that's what i just i'm trying to say in big words but essentially you know i don't do well with big words (laughs) Essentially, when Hong Kong went back to China, they agreed that Hong Kong could continue to practice its, like, democratic and capitalistic ways for 50 years.
1: Oh, okay. So, eventually, they'll go back to their old ways?
0: Well, it was never their old ways, but eventually, Mm. they will go, well, we'll see what happens. But eventually, I would guess that China's plan is to bring them under their, like, communist wing.
1: Well, shit. Mm-hmm. so
0: which do you remember hearing about the riots in hong kong recently yeah yeah that's a big part of it
1: oh really mm-hmm.
0: because these recent riots from 2019 to 2020 were a series of protests um, in response to the introduction of the fugitive offenders amendment bill by the hong kong government uh, this bill would have allowed the extradition to jurisdictions so when a criminal does something and they flee to Hong Kong, um, they can't be sent back to China right now. But Mm -hmm. so this bill was going to say, no, we will allow people who have done a crime in China to be sent back. That's what extradition means. Okay. Um, So people in Hong Kong, the government was trying to get this bill signed and people were protesting this um, because it led to concerns that Hong Kong residents and visitors would be exposed to the legal system of mainland China which citizens believed would undermine Hong Kong's autonomy and infringe on civil liberties. So I think that if Hong Kong had not even been ceded to Britain in the first place, perhaps it would have been under Chinese communist government all along. Mm. So very
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. So Coda, what do you think?
1: I didn't like it. <laughs>
0: <I'm> just <gonna laughs> I just want to. I just want to stop and say I freaking love this episode. I. I find all of that so fascinating, and I don't care what you think because I had so much fun researching this. And I was like, I told you, I said I when I talk about the Opium War in grade ten, I literally give them a paragraph. Yeah. And I didn't know everything that it went into this, and reading it and doing the research, I this is why I love history because I'm such a geek. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool, and all this Canton system, and <laughs> so I don't care what you think.
1: Well, th- that's fine. I'm, I'm actually, that, that makes me very happy because I don't want to, this to just me, you know, cause I know a couple weeks ago you got a, a, a bad rating.
0: Yes. Which also I forgot to mention. Yeah. Um, our listeners say you're wrong about that oh, because they really liked the gnome serum run episodes. So <laughs> it
1: didn't even have any gnomes. What the fuck do they know? <laughs> well, uh, just watch the listeners. This is where the listeners turn on me. <laughs> 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 um, okay. So it got better. My rating went a little bit up from where it was in the Can I beginning. I guess
0: what you're going to give it? Yeah. A five something.
1: It was going to be a five something. Oh. A little higher than that. uh Originally, when you were like talking about the opening stuff, I was like, a, I'll give her a 5.5, and that's being nice. <laughs> 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 but, but, um,. I will give this a 6.0. Oh, okay. So just a 6. Jin is the best boy out of 10.
0: His name is Lin?
1: Lin. <laughs> the best boy. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, I think might have been thinking about the Tekken fighting game because there's a character, the <laughs> main character is called Jin. <laughs> Damn it. And you complimented me on being right that first time.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, Lin is best boy, okay? Okay. Although he's... He might be a little bit of a prat. Like he's like a little bit of a goody two shoes, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, you really same did time, want to get rid of that opium. Yeah, but at the same time, so am I. So Six.
0: Six Lin's. six out of ten.
1: Six Lin is best boy out of ten. It was uh I mean
0: It was dry, I will give you yeah, that. This yeah. is probably our driest episode, but I fucking loved it. And listeners, you can let me know if you like dry episodes or not.
1: I I wish you could be you could say that to your students if you were like teaching them this and be like be like, I don't give a shit if you liked it. I fucking loved it.
0: (laughs) Maybe I'll make them listen to this episode.
1: Maybe. Uh but yeah, uh you know, it uh you're lowest rating yet. So
0: And I feel great about it.
1: I'm glad. That's better because I don't want this to us to turn to turn this off and be like well I'm sleeping on the couch tonight I guess you are still sleeping
0: on the couch okay (laughs) (laughs) okay
1: you fine you and Dave can have the bed
0: perfect well that's all we have for this week we'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us if you enjoyed listening to what we had to say please download and subscribe to our podcast on apple spotify or google leave a review or tell your friends about us
1: If you want to stay in contact or see behind the scenes action, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian. Or if you want to shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted, you can email us at TheReluctantHistorian at gmail.com.
0: So, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place.
1: And listeners, don't be like me. Don't get tricked into another dare lesson.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.